Good morning and thank you and please keep your Bible open to the book of Hebrews. We will be looking at that passage together this morning. Let me just pray briefly and ask God's blessing upon us. Father, we are little and we are weak and we are needy. You are great and you are strong and you are powerful. So we pray that you would fill up what is lacking with us. We pray that you would bless us, speak to us, comfort us, and convict us in the way we must go. In Christ's name, amen. I want you to imagine that you've been called to complete a task that is very, very difficult, that a a person in a position of authority has assigned to you something that is going to take you to the very edge of your limits. We'll say, We'll say this person has gotten in touch with you, he's, he's your boss, he somehow has authority to do this, and he tells you, you must climb Mount Everest. He's assigned the task, you need to do it. You are no outdoorsman, you are no athlete, you're no mountain climber, you have no natural talent, no natural disposition that would make you suited to this task, but you've got no choice. You just have to go ahead, accept it, and complete it. So what would you do? If that had been assigned to you, a very good place to begin would be to seek the counsel of someone who has done it before, to seek someone out who's climbed Mount Everest and to ask for some advice. You've been there before, so please tell me, tell me what I need to know. What's it like to be in a place where the atmosphere is so thin that you can barely breathe? Or what's it like to be way up the mountain and then to see your friends turn back? What's it like to be just battered by winds and assailed by doubts and and to be so tempted to just call it quits even though you're almost, almost there. Please just tell me what it's like. That would be a great place to begin because that person's experience, that person's counsel would be very helpful to you. But I can think of something that would be even better than that and that's if you went to that person and you learned from that person and he told you what it was like and at the end he said, but you know what? I'm going to go with you. I will serve as your guide. Because even better than being told the way you must go is being shown the way you must go. Even better than having someone instruct you is having someone accompany you. Well, if you're a Christian, if you've come to the Lord in repentance and faith, and you've been called to a task that, no doubt about it, is extremely, extremely difficult. You've been called to do something that will take you to the very limits of your ability, to the edge of your endurance, the the absolute last measure of your strength. Or if I'm honest, it'll really take you beyond all of that. Here's what God calls you to do. He calls you to hold fast to the confession you've made. So he calls you to remain unwavering in your commitment to his cause, to remain unbroken in your hope, to remain unstained in your character, to remain unswayed by temptation, to remain uninterrupted in doing good to others throughout the entire course of your life. And then it's not like he gives this challenge in this perfect, utopian-type setting. You have to do all of these things he's called you to in a world like this one. Which means you have to do this while enduring a lifetime of tests and of trials. A lifetime of sorrow and suffering. A lifetime of pain and even persecution. 
You have to do this in a body that gets sick and weary, a body that goes all crazy just because you had to wake up one hour early one morning. You have to do this with a mind that's so easily distracted, so easily distressed. And meanwhile, the world around you and the, the flesh within you and the devil beside you, they are battling you each and every step of the way. They're, they're taunting you and they're tempting you and they're tripping you and they're trying to convince you to, to turn back. I don't know if you've ever seen a movie about Mount Everest or you've talked to someone who's been up, but it turns out there's no season where Mount Everest just kind of throws out the welcome mat and says, come on, just for these three days, it's easy climbing. You can just come on up and have a leisurely stroll. Never happens. And there's no season when the way through this life is simple, when it's easy, when it's leisurely. And so in that light, I'd like to offer us all some encouragement this morning, encouragement for weak people who have been called to a very difficult task, even an impossible task if you're going to try to do it in, in your own strength. So I'd like to offer some reflections from Hebrews chapter four, uh, chapter 4, verse 15. And so we're narrowing in on just one little verse, one little verse from a letter that was written long ago, but was written to people like us, different time, different culture, different context, but human beings, Christian human beings, people eager to do the will of the Lord, people eager to obey the will of the Lord. And yet in this world, with these trials, with these temptations, and so here's what this verse says, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And what I'd like you to consider as we, as we think about this difficult task that God has called us to is three things, that Jesus knows your weaknesses, Jesus cares about your weaknesses, and Jesus helps in your weaknesses. So I want you to understand and believe that in all of life's difficulties, the heart of Jesus is inclined toward you in sympathy. Like that mountain climber. You have someone who cares about you. You have someone who instructs you, but also someone who accompanies you. You have someone who tells you the way to go, but who also shows you the way to go. So Jesus knows, and Jesus cares, and Jesus helps. First this, Jesus knows your weaknesses. The text says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. What does it mean that we have weaknesses? I mean, really, it's just describing something that is just so obviously and demonstrably true. We have weaknesses. That, that means we're morally weak. We are prone to sin. We face constant temptation to rebel against our God. We're morally weak. But it means more than that. It also means that we're physically weak. We are embodied beings. We get sick and we get tired. We're prone to illness and always looming in the distance is our own death. To say we have weaknesses means we're intellectually weak. Weak. 
We're limited in our understanding of, of the world, limited in our understanding of facts, and therefore we're limited in our ability to just make sense of our circumstances and to make good, good decisions moving forward. It means that we're emotionally weak. Our hearts and our minds are easily wearied. They easily grow downcast. Sometimes they're even afflicted or, or diseased. The fact is, we are little creatures, and we display this whole wide range of weaknesses. Our weaknesses are like the paint chips at a, a Home Depot. You go in and you just see this endless variety, this complete spectrum. There's so many, it's hard to even know where to begin. And, and that's us when we think about how are we weak. We are weak in so many ways. And then, all of these weaknesses accompany us through really tough circumstances in life. We do experience a lot of great joys in this life, and praise God for that. But we also face many deep sorrows. We face bodily diseases, and we face mental traumas, and we face relational discord. We, we have children who disobey. We have spouses who betray. We, we face the fires of persecution. We face the, just the consequences of our own poor decisions. And then as if that's not already bad enough, every sorrow and every pain, every trial brings with it some temptation to sin. I'm sure you found this true, that it's so often when we're at our weakest that temptations become strongest. It's when we're most broken that now sin tries to make us whole. It promises just sin and you'll be whole. It's right when we're at our worst that the world entices us and the flesh ensnares us and the devil incites us. Our, our enemies don't fight fair. There's, there's not a moment in life where we can be absolutely certain we will not face temptation in this moment, we can never let down our guard. We are so weak, and life is so hard, and our enemies are so vicious, but our God is so good. Our God is so good because it's to weak people, not strong people, not self-sufficient people. The Bible has no good promises to make to those who believe they're already strong enough or those who think they can stand on their own. But to weak people, it has lovely, precious, beautiful promises like Jesus knows. Jesus knows the facts of your weakness. Even better, Jesus knows the experience of your weaknesses, of everyone. So we can be sure that Jesus knows the facts of all the different ways that you are weak. And we know that because of verse 14, right before the little text we're looking at today. It says, Jesus has passed through the heavens. That's a way of saying that Jesus is reigning over this world. He's seeing and he's knowing and he's maintaining authority over everything that happens within, the, within this world. So he sees your suffering. He knows all about what you're going through. He hasn't missed it. He hasn't failed to spot it. It's before his eyes. It's within his mind. So he knows the facts of it. He also knows the experience of your weaknesses. And we know that because of the verse we're, we're pondering this morning. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we do have a high priest who in every respect has been tempted as we are. For, 
For Jesus, the eternal Son of God, the one who is present at the creation of the world, the one who, with the word of his power, upholds the world, he was born into this world. He took on flesh. He took on blood. He entered into this world. He laid aside his glory, and he became weak. Without ceasing to be God, he became man. And as a man, he faced the sorrows. And he faced the temptations. And he faced the weaknesses that, that any human being endures. He was tempted as we are. That word tempt, when we find it in the Bible, can have a couple of different aspects to it. It can refer to the kind of temptation that's intended to cause a person to sin. To, to cause a person to either act in a way that God forbids or to fail to act in a way that God requires or demands of his people. And we know, we can read very clearly in Scripture, that Jesus faced that kind of temptation. He faced it when he was in the wilderness. And Satan came before him to tempt him. And what Satan did was he offered Jesus an easier path through life than the one God the Father had assigned to him. So he said, just, just bow before me. Jesus, just bow before me, and I will give you all the kingdoms of this world. I'll give you exactly what your Father has promised, but I'll do it with no suffering, no blood, no cross. Just bow before me, and it's all yours. So tempt can refer to that kind of circumstance, a circumstance designed very specifically to lead you into sin. But tempt can also refer to the kind of trial that's designed to help you grow, to help you grow in character, to help you grow in ability. And Jesus faced this kind of trial as well. Earlier in, in Hebrews, we're, we're told, for it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons of glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So Jesus had to be made perfect, which is an odd thing to think about. How, how did Jesus have to be made perfect? It was not in the sense of reforming his character. His character was already perfect and unblemished. No, it, it was in the sense of having to pass the tests of character and then through those tests of character, being able to prove that he was faithful, that he was unblemished, that he would not blunder into sin. So in the way this works, it wasn't enough for Jesus to simply be perfect. Jesus had to prove himself perfect. And how did he do that? He did that by being weak and in his weakness passing tests, enduring temptations, all these things that come upon us as, as weak, mortal, embodied human beings. The text says he was tempted in every respect as we are doesn't mean he faced every possible temptation a human being can face, but he did face every, every kind of test, every category of test. So Jesus was tempted to just outright defy the revealed will of God, just like we do. Sometimes we know what the will of God is, and we say, no, I'm doing my own thing instead. Jesus was tempted with that. Jesus was tempted to only partially obey the will of God, to say, I'll go this far, but, but no farther. And Jesus was tempted to twist 
the word of God, just like Satan always does. You think it means that? Did God really say that or could he have meant this instead? So Jesus was tempted in all those ways. And then he was tempted by the circumstances of his life for he existed in a finite, weak body like yours and like mine. And it's in that weak body as a man, as a human being that Jesus endured sorrow and loss. He endured insults and betrayal. He went through physical pain and emotional agony. He was weak. He was weak. And in those weaknesses, surely he was tempted to respond poorly to what happened. Surely he was tempted to add sin to his sorrow, to add rebellion to his pain. Just think. It was when Jesus had been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. He was hungry. He was weary. It's right then that Satan launched this full-out assault when his body was already at its very edge. It's when he was already in, in physical and spiritual agony on the cross that people goaded him. Come down off that cross. Save yourself. Escape the Father's wrath. Come down here and live. Of course, there's one, one great difference between Jesus' temptations and ours, and the author is very, very clear on that. Jesus passed through each and every one of them without sin. Just imagine that. The Father sent the Son from the perfection of heaven to this earth. Just the ugly mess of this earth. And Jesus didn't grumble. He didn't complain. People insulted his mother. They charged him with, with debauchery, with partying, with, with living in immorality. He never lashed out in unrighteous anger. He faced the, the full scorn of humanity and the wrath of his father. He didn't pout. He didn't whine. He didn't feel sorry for himself. This, this Jesus of ours, he was betrayed and abandoned and beaten and belittled and bullied and bereaved never once. Never once in all of that did he fail to love God with his whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. Never in the absolute worst of what he experienced in life did he fail to love his neighbor as himself. He in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet never once did he sin. Now I know... I assume, I expect that right now some people are wondering, but could Jesus have actually sinned? Could he actually have done that? That's sometimes treated as a kind of dilemma for Christians. But I think the answer is actually very straightforward. In the book of James, we read about the way temptation leads us to sin, the way we respond to temptation. Here's what James says. He says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So, James tells us that temptation takes advantage of our evil desires. Temptation lures and entices us in ways that appeal to whatever evil desires lurk within our hearts. It's when our evil desires respond to that temptation. Whatever temptation is being dangled before us, that's when we sin. So it's not sinful to be tempted, but it's our sinful nature that so often makes temptation effective. It looks at those evil desires within and it lures us through them. So here's the question. 
what evil desires did Jesus have that temptation could take advantage of? What evil appetites were lurking in the heart of Jesus that could respond to the bait the devil was dangling before him? None. Nothing. He had no evil desires, so there was absolutely nothing for, for sin, for temptation to latch on to. Temptation had no appeal to him because there was no evil desire within. So this does not mean that Jesus didn't really and actually face genuine temptation. He very, very much did. He was every bit as human as I am and as you are. And in that humanity, he faced sorrows that were far, far greater than anything you and I ever will. And in those sorrows, he was offered a prize much, much greater than any of us will ever be offered. He didn't waver. Not for a moment. He remained absolutely, completely perfect. I wonder if you've thought of this before. If Jesus never sinned, it means that he faced the full weight and the full duration of every single temptation that ever came his way. Think how often you give in to temptation in the very first moment. It's there and you respond. Or even, you know, you might endure for a few moments or a few hours or a few days, but often the way you get relief from temptation is to give in to temptation. One of the ways we try and encourage one another is to say, well, at least you didn't give in right away this time. Look how you're growing as a Christian, that it takes you longer to respond now. That, that's true and that's good. Jesus never once gave in, which means he never once got relief from his temptation in the way we often do. Can you imagine facing and enduring every one of life's temptations all the way until that temptation had been lifted or until you died? It's incredible. The writer of Hebrews wants us to understand that because Jesus was weak and tempted, he knows. He knows what it is to be weak and tempted. He's experienced it himself. He has endured it himself. As we think about what makes the Christian faith unique, how about this? Our God entered into this world and knows what it is to be a weak and a tempted human being. There's such comfort for us there. There's such comfort in understanding that Jesus knows what you're going through. Whatever it is, whatever sorrow, whatever just manifestation of your weakness, he knows. He sees it all, so he understands the facts of it. But he also knows what it's like to face very difficult circumstances, to face the fiercest temptations, to face the absolute most vicious assaults. And so as you face trials... As you come up to difficulties, as you endure traumas, whatever comes in life, please know, please remember, please believe that Jesus knows. But then also believe that he does more than know. Jesus knows, he also cares. That's the second thing I want us to see here. I wonder if you notice that the author describes Jesus here as our high priest. Why does he use that title? There's many titles he could have used for Jesus. Why did he choose high priest here? I mean, to answer that fully, we'd have to look a little wider in the context of, of the letter. 
But for our purposes, in this part of Hebrews, the, the author's focusing on the way Jesus represents us. So in the Old Testament, there was a high priest. And the high priest would stand between God and the people and he would mediate their relationship. He would stand between them as their mediator. The priest represented the people before God and the priest represented God before the people. That's what a mediator does. So the author of this letter means to show us that, that the priesthood, all its sacrifices, especially though the high priest, found its fulfillment in Jesus. Jesus, who was the, the ultimate representative between God and man, because he was both God and man. He could stand between as, as God, he could represent God, as man, he could represent man. Which means he is the full high priest, the final high priest. It was really Jesus that every high priest was in some way pointing toward. Jesus that every sacrifice was pointing toward. In verse 14, I said before, the writer has said that as our high priest, Jesus has passed through the heavens. So just as the, the high priest in the Old Testament, who had passed through the curtain and into the Holy of Holies to make an acceptable offering to God, Jesus has passed through the heavens as an acceptable offering to God. And that offering having been made and accepted, Jesus now sits in heaven and he rules and he reigns. That being the case, you just think of somebody who's seated in the heavens, ruling and reigning over the, the affairs of this universe. You might be tempted to think, well, if that's true of Jesus, then he probably doesn't really care about a little person like me. If he's way beyond suffering, why would he care about my suffering? You might think of him as being like some billionaire who's, you know, he's sitting on his massive yacht out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean and he's fussing about the fact that butter has gone up a couple dollars a pound. You think, you can't understand. You're too far removed from the realities of my little grocery budget. Well, could it be that because Jesus is transcendent, he can't be sympathetic. That because he's ruling over the universe, he can't really care about the affairs of your life or my life. See, the author knows people are going to be wondering this. He's anticipated it. I wonder if you notice in the letter that he phrases this, or in this verse, he phrases it as a negative instead of a positive. Would it have been efficient for him to say, we have a high priest who is able to sympathize. It's good, efficient use of language. We have a high priest, who can sympathize. He doesn't say that though. He says we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. So he knows some people will be wondering if all this is true about Jesus, does he still care about this world? Does he still care about me? But his response is that just because Jesus has transcended this world doesn't mean he stopped caring about people within this world. These things don't cross each other out. And that means that as, as you yourself, as you endure the realities of your weaknesses, as you endure the consequences of your human weaknesses, Jesus truly cares. He truly cares about you as you're going through whatever it is that you're going through. And even better, he sympathizes. He sympathizes with you. To sympathize is to feel sorrow or to feel pity. It's, it's to care rather than to be cold or to be apathetic. 
to sympathize is to, to share an understanding of what another person is going through and to have your heart moved by it. It's, it's to so love and so identify with someone that you suffer with them. You suffer alongside of them. When you sympathize with someone, you, you bear their burdens. When you sympathize with someone, you weep with those who weep. When you sympathize with someone, you're loving your neighbor as yourself. Sympathy is powerful. Sympathy is powerful, and you have the sympathy of God's own Son. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Isn't that a comforting thing? It means you will never meet a pain or a sorrow in this life where he is cold, where he is uncaring. You'll never meet a trial in this life where the Lord is aloof, where he's unmoved. You'll never meet a temptation in which you cry out for help and he just, he just turns his back on you and leaves you to face it in your own little strength. You know, circle back for a sec to the fact that Jesus never sinned. What good does that do you in your sorrows and temptations? How does it help you as you're going through life to know that Jesus never sinned? Well, imagine you suffer a terrible loss. Your heart is broken. You're going through very, very difficult days. And you call a friend because you know he endured something similar in the past. And he rushes to your side. And when he comes, he says, yeah, I remember when that happened. And when that happened to me, I just shook my fist at God and I cursed God's providence. And I went to the bottle for comfort and I drowned my sorrows in booze. That would not help you one little bit. His sinful response to that situation makes him completely useless to you as you go through yours. Or if you struggle with a sin, that, that temptation is just weighing down on you, and you call a friend, and you say, I'm tempted, I need help, and all he says is, yeah, I always give in to that temptation as well. It doesn't help. It doesn't do you any good. But in Jesus, you can be certain, absolutely certain, that you have a friend, he, he's faced that loss and he's done it with complete trust and complete confidence in God. You have a friend who's overcome that temptation and he never wavered, he never gave in. You have a friend who can serve as an example to you, he can tell you, he can help you overcome, you just have to do what he did, just follow him. And you can be certain that because he's been there, he cares. He sympathizes. He's sorrowful for the sorrow that you're enduring. We sing the hymn, Jesus, what a friend for sinners. And in that hymn we say, Jesus, what a strength in weakness. Let me hide myself in him. Tempted, tried, and sometimes failing. He, my strength, my victory wins. Or the next verse, Jesus, what a help in sorrow. While the billows o'er me roll, even when my heart is breaking, he, my comfort, helps my soul. We have so much strength, so much help, so much comfort in our risen, reigning, tempted, tested, proven, perfect Savior. So in all of your suffering, in all of your sorrow, all of your pains, all of your temptations, all your loneliness, all these manifestations of your weakness, you can be confident you have the sympathy of Jesus Christ himself. The one who's passed through the heavens, he knows, he cares, he sympathizes. 
And of course, sympathy at its best is not merely about feeling, it's about doing. It's a feeling that takes form in action. And sure enough, we learn the third thing. Jesus knows, Jesus cares, and Jesus acts. In fact, it's because Jesus knows and Jesus cares that he takes action. If if Jesus didn't know or he didn't care, then yeah, he wouldn't take action. But he does know. He does care. So of course he's going to do something. Of course he won't abandon you in your hour of need. No, he'll prove himself most present just when he's most needed. To see that, we'll have to just take a really brief glance into the next verse, verse 16. It's here that we see the implications of his sympathy. So verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus knows and Jesus cares. Okay, we've established that. So what do you do about it? What's the call to action for you on the basis of Jesus knowing and Jesus caring? What do you do? Simple. You draw near. The call to action for you is to draw near, to draw near to the throne of grace. That's that's a poetic way of telling you to pray. You remember Queen Esther approaching the throne of King Ahasuerus, and, and he held out the royal scepter. And that was his way of signifying, his way of signaling, you may make your petition. You can come before me and ask me for whatever you need to ask. Well, for us who have been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ, God's scepter is always held out toward us. He's always welcoming us to draw near to him so we can bring our petition. We can come before his throne and we can make our request. He's always glad to hear from us, always glad to have us enter in. It's amazing. You have the right to approach God. Can you imagine that Queen, Queen Esther trembling, knowing her life was at risk to come before her own husband? You have the right to approach God because of Jesus Christ. The right of approaching God the Father through Jesus Christ. It's because of what Christ has accomplished that you now have the right to approach the very throne of God and to plead for his help. And as you do that, you'll find that God is willing, God is able to help. What does God's help look like? Again, verse 16, let us draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace. So God's help looks like mercy and grace. These two come together. As you cry out to God in your hour of weakness, he'll grant mercy. Mercy to overlook all the sins you've committed. By his mercy, he sets all of your sins and all of your transgressions aside. He doesn't count them against you. How could he count them against you when your your high priest has made the full and final sacrifice? Really, when your high priest has been the full and final sacrifice. And so you receive mercy. As you come before the Lord in your hour of need, you, you come to his throne of grace, you cry out, he grants mercy. Have you asked God for mercy? Have you asked God to forgive your sins? To restore the relationship that you disrupted when you rebelled against him. All these wonderful promises we've been talking about here. These are for those who are in relationship with God. 
They're for those who have turned to God in repentance, who have turned away from being self-sufficient and turned to God. And whether it's the, the first time you come to the throne of grace or the one millionth time, God is so eager to hear from you. God is so eager to forgive you. God is so eager to grant you mercy. God freely, God joyfully distributes mercy in your hour of need. He also distributes grace. These things come together, grace and mercy. Grace that prepares you and equips you to endure your trials with faith. It allows you to remain unbroken when tested. It allows you to, to pass through your temptation without sin. What does grace do for us in our hour of need? Grace allows you to hold fast to the confession you've made. It allows you to resist the devil. It allows you to crucify the flesh. It allows you to remain unspotted by the world. It's God's grace that allows you to bow your knee in submission even when your heart has been broken. It's God's grace that allows you to have a song of praise on your lips even when your cheeks are stained with tears. It's grace that allows you to profess he is the light even when everything around you is darkness. And that grace comes most prominently in the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Christ who's given to dwell within you. You remember Jesus promised that when he left, he would send a helper. When he ascended to the Father's side, he would send a helper. And what a helper you have. The Spirit takes up residence within you to guide you, to accompany you from your very first step to your very last, from, from the base of the mountain all the way to its summit, from the moment of your salvation to the moment you stand in God's presence, that moment of victory, of accomplishment, when you've cried your last tear and you've felt your last pain and you've endured your last temptation. Jesus knows and Jesus sees, and Jesus acts. He cares. So when life reveals your weaknesses, doesn't life has its way of, of revealing your weaknesses, turn to Jesus. When you're experiencing another wave of temptation and you're just, you're fighting tooth and nail to remain faithful, turn to Jesus. When you, you, you failed to resist that temptation, you've, you've sinned and you've fallen again, turn to Jesus. When your body's aching, your mind is troubled, your heart is broken, turn to Jesus. You know the song that says, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. The things of earth will grow strangely dim. The things of earth like suffering. Things of earth like sorrow. Things of earth like sin. They grow strangely dim as you just bask in the light of his glory and his grace. Jesus has endured what God's calling you to endure right now. Jesus has been tempted with whatever it is that's tempting you in this season of your life. Jesus has held fast to his confession through even the deepest, darkest valleys. 
just like the ones you may be going through right now. And so when you're called to go up this impossible mountain track, when, when the path you had feared is the way God has set, when you have to pass through any of the sorrows that come to those of us who are little and weak and prone to temptation, just look. Look within. You'll find the Spirit right there guiding you to truth. Look beside you. You'll see the Good Shepherd guarding you from fear. Best of all, look down. Look down and you'll see His footprints. And you will know that your faithful, loving Savior has passed that way before. Amen. Let me pray for us. Our Father, we are so thankful that you sent your Son. Jesus, we're so thankful that you are willing to be sent, that you came into this world to live a perfect, unblemished life, to endure all the temptations that we have to endure, and through it all, to remain perfect and sinless. Holy Spirit, we're thankful that you were sent to dwell within us, to lead us into truth. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we love you. We're grateful for you. We pray your blessing upon us as you call us to endure all the, the circumstances that come to those of us who are weak and little and so very needy. Help us to endure them in your strength, to endure them by grace to long for the day when we're in your presence and all tears are gone, all sorrows are ended. Praise in the name of our precious Savior. Amen.